0: Welcome to the PC Speaking Podcast series Through the Bible in a Year, where we come together for daily reading and reflection as we journey through the scriptures. Let's dive into today's episode with Pastor Chris Miller. We're the end, the empty space we're the Hello and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast and our Through the Bible in a Year reading program. We are on day number thirty-five, uh, February the fourth. Certainly glad to have you along. Um, yeah, goodness me, we're on day thirty-five already. I hope your Bible reading has been going well. That um, it has been working out. Yeah, great for you and. Each, well, seventh day, it works out the first year through it it falls on a Sunday. But um, the seventh day of the reading program, every seventh day, we do some scripture memorization. And that's what we're doing today is talking about the verse that is our memory verse. Uh, I've done a lot of scripture memorizing in the past. Uh, I remember my first year in secondary seminary. Secondary, whatever. I remember my first year in seminary, I probably memorized, well, over 300 verses. And of course, there's no way I could recite all those to you now. Um, I often can remember things long enough to pass the test, and then they just kind of float away after that. Um, I remember on the off chance, uh, I was in Sunday school as a kid. There was a lot of scripture memory back then, too. But in all of my scripture memory, I've rarely had an explanation as to why we memorized the verses we did. And it is important, but I think it's also important to explain the why of why we memorize verses and in each the individual verses in particular too. In the time that um, I was told that I remember why we were memorizing verses, I was in a personal evangelism course and the reason we were memorizing verses was so that we could recite them when we were sharing the gospel with someone else. And it may be helpful to memorize scripture to do that, but it's not actually necessary to memorize scripture verses to share your faith with something. It's good, it's helpful, but you don't have to. You can uh, just tell people you know, about your experience with Jesus, what happened to you and how they can know him too. And uh, I have a copy of the Bible, If I want to find a particular verse or I can just Google it. Um, If you're of an old enough vintage, you remember back in the olden days when we used to use a concordance to find Bible verses, but uh, with all the tools we have available now, we really don't have to do that anymore. You can hop on your phone, on your laptop, whatever, Google a couple of words out of the verse you're looking for and easily find it. And when the scripture is that accessible, we might wonder why memorize Bible verses at all? And in particular, the verse we're talking about today. Well, let's shed some light on that today. Memorization is more about ingesting the concept of the verse and making it part of who we are than it is just rote memory or simply being able to remember the address of the verse. And there's a reason that we commit portions of Scripture, Bible verses to memory, even if we... uh may not always remember it word for word, which is certainly the case with me. I can memorize a lot of stuff, but it doesn't stick around in my brain long. But what I do tend to remember is the concept of the verse. And today our memory verses is um, from Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. I'm gonna read verses 20, uh, let's see, 34, sorry, 34 through 40, just to put it in context for us. And let's go ahead and read that now. Matthew 22, 34 says, when the Pharisees heard, that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. One of them who was a lawyer tested him by asking him, "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' Jesus said to him, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart "'and with all your soul, and with all your mind. "'This is the first and great commandment, "'and the second is like it. "'You shall love your neighbor as yourself. "'On these two commandments hang all the law "'and the prophets.'" Well, to better understand this passage, We're going to take some time and dig into this. And we're going to look at the scriptural and the cultural context of it. And then we'll focus on some specifics of what it is Jesus wants us to learn from these verses. Now, leading up to this, there uh, is a series of parables about a master and his subordinates. And this chapter opens with the last one of those. And in those parables, Jesus illustrates the current relationship between the nation of Israel, God's people, and God himself. And those parables center around God's people and how they reject his son. When you read through the gospels, you see people who follow Jesus. You see people who walk away from Jesus, people who are curious about Jesus, which, you know, who wouldn't be? This guy's performing miracles. What's this about? And we also people see people who listen to Jesus, but for the most part, Uh, When Jesus has conflict with people, the conflict surrounding Jesus comes from the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees. So Jesus is given a series of parables that are incriminating against the nation of Israel and even more so against the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And it's for that reason that verse 15 uh, says, then the Pharisees went and took counsel to entangle him in his words. Then the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians ask Jesus a series of questions. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians ask him if it is lawful for them to pay taxes to Caesar. And that's uh, one of my favorite passages to preach from. I've preached from that many times. And somewhere down the track, I I think we'll touch on that one again. But the Pharisees and the Herodians, there are a couple of groups of of people who are just diametrically opposed to each other in um, all things, but maybe you've heard the saying, there's nothing that unites people quite like a common enemy. And the Pharisees and the Herodians are both enemies of Jesus. So they come together and try to trap him with a question that they think doesn't have a correct answer. Of course, the Pharisees, they are supporters of the Jewish people, the Jewish law, the Herodians are actually supporters of the Roman government. So, you know, they ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? If he says, yes, it is, the Pharisees bring the Jewish people against him. If he says, no, it's not, the Herodians will bring the Roman government against him. But like I say, we'll probably get into that more down the track. But the next question is about the resurrection and it's asked by the Sadducees. And ironically, uh, the Sadducees who asked the question don't even believe there will be a resurrection of the dead. And then we come to our passage today. Um, verses 34 and 35 say, when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they came together. One of them who was a lawyer tested him by asking him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? To finish out the chapter, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. And it goes on into the next chapter to tell everyone they're hypocrites and that they expect people to carry loads they won't carry themselves. So that is the scriptural context of what's happening. A bunch of parables incriminating against the Pharisees, talking about how God's people reject God's son. Now let's talk a bit about the cultural context and what we can learn from it. this might seem like a bit of a sidetrack, but this is gonna help us better understand our Bible. Culture is a very, very powerful thing. Far more powerful than most people realize. Um, I've made four major cultural shifts in my life. And I can tell you from experience without doubt that culture is very powerful. And there may be exceptions, but I kind of doubt it. But culture is very likely the most powerful and influential thing in your life. And most people don't know that. The culture you live in influences you more than anything else. The culture you grew up in, your native culture, um, influences you more than anything else. And there are thousands of things that you do all the time that you don't even think about that are cultural, the way people interact with either. You know, what you think is right and wrong or bad and good or how you think those things should be dealt with, how important those things are, are shaped by the culture in which you live When someone from another culture does something weird, it's not so much that it's weird, it's a cultural thing. And the dictionary defines culture as the ideas, customs, and social behavior of a particular people or society. And that's true, but it really doesn't, yeah, um, what would you say? Communicate the strength and depth of culture. Culture is always happening. It's always changing. It's always around us but we don't often think about it. Culture is a lot more than just food and art. Sometimes people travel to a new place and you know, whatever it might be, Australia, America, European, whatever it might be. And they say, man, I really love that culture. Um, They spent two weeks there. And really what they mean is I like the food or I like the food and the art. Now, if you were to spend, say, maybe three months in that culture, you might feel a little bit differently about it. But culture is everything from hand gestures to eye movement, to voice inflection, to body language, to um, it it decides what our concept of time is. It's the things in our culture that we don't even realize that we know and do. Now, modern Western culture is very individualistic. The rights of the individual are highly valued. Um, They are very, very high up on the importance scale. And because of that, modern Western culture is a guilt and innocence culture. And how society applies laws is based on guilt and innocence, guilt and or innocence in regard to those laws. We teach kids to follow the rules, obey the laws. We teach them to follow the rules in school. We expect them to develop a consciousness of those things and then act on that consciousness. And as a result of our guilt and innocence culture, we sometimes feel guilty for things that we do or sometimes we might feel guilty for things that we don't do. We see innocence as being right or righteous and we feel right or righteous because we follow the law or the rules or at least we don't break them. And there are various degrees to that that are all cultural as well. It's a very complicated and in-depth thing. Now, this presents a struggle sometimes for people regarding... Uh, accepting the gospel because the Bible tells us that no one is righteous and we're not made righteous by keeping the law, but through Jesus. But in our culture, we're right or righteous through keeping the rules, keeping the law. So sometimes there's a little bit of friction there between the gospel and Western culture because people want to say, well, I'm made right by keeping the rules. And keeping the rules is a good thing. Keeping the law is a good thing. We shouldn't break the law. Um, but it's not how we're made right with Jesus. We're made right with Jesus through his blood, through the gospel. Now, to those of us who have grown up in a guilt and innocence culture, that's right. That's how things work. That's how it is. That's how it should be. There's also a kind of culture that is a fear and power culture, Um just a quick example of what a fear and power culture might be. Uh, You know, you've probably seen some, maybe some statues of lions or maybe of warriors holding spears and they're in front of someone's home or a temple or something like that. And, usually those kinds of things are found in a fear and power culture. Those statues are meant to scare away evil spirits or welcome good spirits. And one is, is more powerful than the other and you're afraid of some things. Um, But that's kind of just a loose, I don't know, quick example of what that might look like, but for the sake of time, we'll save fear and power, power culture for another day. Now, The culture of the Jewish people, of the time that Jesus was doing his ministry in Israel, is different again. Now, the culture of biblical times, uh, at least in the Gospels and uh, a lot of the Old Testament, is an honor and shame culture. It's a very collectivist culture, unlike... Our Western individualism, individualistic culture. The issue isn't right and wrong, which is hard for our guilt and innocent cultural mind to process. The issue is not right and wrong, but the issue is honor and shame. Gaining honor and avoiding shame are the highest goals. And this is an extreme example, but you've you've heard of honor killings, I'm sure. And to those, to us in Western individually uh, individualistic. Guilt and instance culture, those are wrong. And, you know, that's against the law to murder someone. And biblically, murder is wrong. But in an honor shame culture, where an honor killing will restore honor to the family or community, that can be viewed as the correct thing to do. In John chapter eight, with the adulterous woman, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus with that very thing. They wanted to kill her. She has dishonored. Uh, Her community brought shame on the community and herself and killing her would restore honor. In our guilt and innocence culture, if someone's guilty of infidelity like that, we see them as guilty, but we don't feel the need to restore honor. Hence the reason we don't feel that we need to throw someone in jail or worse for something like infidelity. We see it as wrong. You know, you've broken the rules, but we don't feel the need to restore honor. In an honor-shame culture, individualism is not very important. It's not very high up the priority list. Individuals tend to sacrifice for the good of others, whether it be family or community. And communication in a culture like that is often indirect and body language is very important. Uh, What's often or what's not said is often uh, carries more significance than what is said And we read about people. In the Bible, you know, tearing their clothes, for instance, that's one example of something that's not said, but it's definitely communicating a message. Uh, a good example of that is what we talked about in John chapter eight with a woman caught in adultery. When the Pharisees want to uh, stone the adulterous woman, Jesus communicates with them, but he doesn't speak. He kneels down and he draws in the dirt. Now, Jesus wasn't just bored or ignoring the Pharisees. He was communicating something that was obviously very powerful, but he wasn't using words to do it. Now, someone from ancient Jewish culture could probably tell us exactly what was going on there, but we don't fully understand it. And that doesn't stop speculation though, personally. I like to speculate about that as well. But it's one of those nonverbal communication things that, Often happens in an honor shame culture, and if we don't understand someone else's culture and worldview, we can very easily misinterpret what they say and what they do because culture is um, it's it's everything. It's how we you know hold our mouth when we talk, the the way we move our eyes when we talk to people, uh, the way we shake our head. You know, some cultures uh, yes means no and no means yes. It's it's very. Um, yeah, it's very challenging to communicate with someone from a different culture. And personally, you know, I'm sure I've said and done things to other people that were offensive or misinterpreted, and I had no idea I was doing it. And some people who offended me, maybe they probably didn't know they were doing it to me either. Now, what matters for Christians is that if we don't understand or are unwilling to understand the reality of cultural differences, Um, For one, we we won't understand the Bible as well as we could. Now the Bible works in every culture. That's not what I'm talking about, but there's a deeper understanding that comes with cultural understanding. And if we don't make an effort to understand the culture of others, even the culture in which we live, you know, recognizing that even that it does exist and there's things that we do and say that are gonna be different for other cultures and other people. And doesn't mean their culture's wrong. doesn't mean we're going to give it up or change. It just means others are different. But if we don't make an effort to understand those things, we'll struggle to communicate God's love, God's word, God, and the gospel in ways that will make sense to people. For instance, if you share the gospel with someone in an honor-shame culture who didn't grow up in a culture based on biblical values, like someone who grew up in an Islamic country, for instance, Uh, for an Islamic person to accept Jesus is to reject their family and community and disgrace their family and their community and themselves. It goes a lot deeper than just trying to convince them you're right. There's a lot more to it than that. Now, through my Western eyes, I might say, well, just do it. That's what you do. You know, make the decision. You can see the facts that I've put forth here. You should accept these. It's your life. You need to make decisions for yourself but that's how i see it through my individualistic guilt and innocence cultural upbringing we you know we could go on and on about this stuff but i say all that to say that god inspired the authors of scripture to write scripture and they lived in a collective honor shame culture that we read through individualistic guilt in innocent glasses. That takes nothing away from it, and it works in every culture, but it gives us a deeper understanding. Just something to be humble about, something to learn, something to be aware of more than anything else. And the Bible talks about you know, honoring God. The Bible talks about Jesus enduring shame. And today in our world, due to social media, the internet, uh, globalism the speed of communication our culture changes very very quickly and that's tiresome and confusing for people especially if you're a little older because we struggle to know how to act you so it was clear you know how you interact with people what you do all of that is is being shaken up and changed at a very fast rate and we are changing cultures without changing locations. And that is the source of much of the frustration and the division that we see in the world today. People drive up with those who are similar to themselves in an attempt to gain stability in a culture that really feels like quicksand. I know, like me, I I, I have to stay off social media. I don't watch that much news because it gives me an ulcer it's difficult for me to adjust you know i'm starting to get a little older and and it's just harder for me to deal with cultural change we're shifting towards an honor shame culture especially among younger people you know and i'm trying to understand that and work with it the best i can because you can't change that it's going to change and you and i can't stop it now here's an important thing to remember when the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians confront Jesus in scripture, okay, they're not seeking answers or truth. They're not trying to disprove what Jesus says. They're not trying to say, look, it, this guy is guilty. They are seeking to shame him publicly. And when you read the Bible from that perspective, you begin to see the true weight of these interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the scribes and the Sadducees and how they become so important and how they can even become a matter of life and death. Even the cross of Jesus itself is as much about shame as it is about the death and the pain and the shed blood. And Jesus had humiliated and shamed his adversaries publicly those people who are actively working against him and their motivation for interacting with Jesus and trying to catch him in his words is so that they can shame him publicly and if they can shame him publicly then they can take action to restore their honor and the honor of the community like when they were going to stone the adulterous woman for instance Um, I was reading a restaurant review recently and someone was was making accusations that the hostess at a restaurant was a racist. Now I don't want to light anybody's fuse, but I've kind of started to come to the conclusion that people point fingers who are pointing fingers and calling people racist are actually pretty racist themselves. Now, when this happened in this review, I, I saw it as an attempt to bring shame on this person. The person writing the review didn't say, I heard some racist remarks or I saw something that was a racist action. The wording was, this person is a racist. They were not trying to say, this person did something wrong. They were trying to say, this person is something wrong, which is very popular right now. And maybe I'm wrong, but I believe we've seen a cultural a cultural attitudes shift from the concept that a person's ideas and beliefs are something wrong to that person is something wrong. And that's hard for people who don't see things in that way to deal with. It's very difficult. And in the cultural context of the religious leaders attacking Jesus, they're not trying to say that Jesus is wrong about something. They're trying to say Jesus is, himself is something wrong. Now, the Pharisees come to Jesus and someone who is an expert in the Old Testament law asks him what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus answers with this. He answers with our our memory verse. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets theologians at the time, Pharisees, et cetera, lawyers, whatever they were, were no different than they are today. People are, are are similar. I mean, cultures are very different. People are kind of similar though. And there was a lot of different opinions about how to interpret scripture. And in this case, how to organize God's commandments into an order of importance. And that's why he asked Jesus this question. They're trying to ask Jesus questions that they believe they can use to shame him because there's so much disagreement on what's most important, you know, uh, the the rank ordering of these commands that no matter what he says, there's somebody that will be against him that they can get behind and publicly shame him. And Jesus answers him and he says, the first one is love God and the second one is like it, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Jesus goes on to say, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That means that every Old Testament law and every word of every prophet is fulfilled by doing these two things. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus not only sums this up, he's actually directly quoting from the Old Testament when he says these things. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, and Leviticus 19, 18 is where you'll find these commands in the Old Testament. Love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, interestingly, that sounds like it's been rank ordered. In the original language, there's no definite article on the second, where he says, the second is like it. Which means there's no definite article, meaning there's no the. It's just like second is like it. And That means that Jesus is telling us, you know, he says, okay, there's a command, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first commandment. And then there's another commandment like that one. We tend to want to order the commandments naturally. And obviously the Pharisees had been trying to do that, but they couldn't agree on the order. But what Jesus is teaching in this passage is that it's not about the order of importance of the commandments. He's not teaching in order. What he's teaching is that there is a symbiotic relationship between the commandments. These commandments are close and connected. There's a commandment, and then there's another one like it. They interact. They're mutually beneficial. One supports the other. They work together. As a matter of fact... <laughs> Uh, the Bible goes so far to tell us that if you don't have the one, you won't have the other. That's how closely connected they are. Love God and love your neighbor. John records that in the gospel of John chapter 14. He repeats it in first John chapter five. If you love God, you keep his commandments. And these passages say that if you love God and you hate your brother or you, you don't love your neighbor, you're a liar. You're lying about loving God. And Jesus is teaching us, that we don't have one without the other. If you don't love God, you don't love your neighbor. If you don't love your neighbor, you don't love your, love God. See, the two commandments are connected with each other. It's not that one is more important than the other, because if we think of one as more important than the other, we kind of think, well, I'll do this one, but that one might get put on hold. It's not that big a deal. Maybe if I miss that second one, don't love my neighbor. But the fact is, is, what Jesus is teaching is, is the two are interconnected, they're symbiotic, and if we don't have one, we don't have the other. If you're not doing one, you're also not doing the other. So, what's the significance of all of this? You know, why memorize these particular verses? What's the significance of this? In light of where we are in the world today, you know, how do we bring this home in our culture and the world we're living in now? Why we, should we commit this verse to memory? Well, I heard a story uh, about a husband and a wife who were having difficulty in their marriage, and the difficulties were due to political differences. And it, it, the political differences were enough that it was causing strife in their marriage, like their marriage wasn't working political differences had become more powerful and influential than their marriage covenant. And we live in a very divided world. If political differences can divide a marriage covenant, that is that is so divided. Historically speaking, catastrophes and conflicts have mostly brought people together. Maybe not all of them, but mostly they brought people together. And I would think, you know, a global pandemic like we had a few years ago would have brought people together, but it seems that it divided people even more. It didn't bring them together. Now, my country of origin in the U.S., I know I have some listeners there, appreciate you guys. Um, As you would know, probably uh, people all over the world would probably know a little bit about this, but there's a tremendous amount of division in the U.S., Um, in many different ways, many different things going on all the time. Uh, At the moment, the Texas government is in a physical standoff with the federal government. It'd be interesting to see how that all shakes out. I think they're going to court over it, I believe, is how they're handling it at the moment. Um, There's just a border crossing there in Texas that the Texas government has uh, shored up with their own National Guard, and they're not allowing the federal border patrol in there and that's that's some sticky business but out of 25 or out of 50 states 25 state governors have signed a letter of support for the Texas government there's an election coming up and the US is split right down the middle and there's a lot of that around the world especially in western culture everyone is angry at a group of people about something and the division that we see in the world today is beyond just seeing views and opinions as the problem. It's gone to the point where the people who hold different views and opinions are something wrong. It's not like their opinions are messed up. It's not like they're wrong. It's not like we need to fix their opinions. We need to do something about those people. That's the attitude of a lot of people today over the divisions in the world. Many problems we see in the world have been under the surface for a long time or they're always there. You know, it's, it's not like any of this stuff is new. There's nothing new under the sun. Stress just brings those things to the surface and the cultural shift and change that we're seeing in the world brings a lot of, you know, is very stressful. And it, it makes a lot of these struggles bubble up to the surface. I saw another man, uh, he was in an interaction with some discussing gender with university students, a very, uh, another very divisive topic in the world today. Now this this guy, he was polite, he was cordial. He was having a conversation with someone who was transgender, um, sitting next to him in a chair. And after he spoke to this person, this person wouldn't shake hands with him after talking to him because this person saw him as something wrong. It's not that his opinions were wrong, it's that he was wrong, that he himself is a problem. Now, another lady came up to him after he finished this conversation and she leaned over and got in his face and said, you are scum. And it, it was not an, I disagree with what you believe statement or what you believe is a problem. It was, you are the problem. You are scum. People are people. And we see this going on in the world. Like people, it's not... People don't just have a problem with ideas and thoughts and ideologies. They have a problem with other people and people are people. And Christians can very easily fall into the trap of doing the same things. I've seen Christians do this with, um, the transgender thing, with Islam, with all kinds of different groups of people saying things like those people are the problem, what they believe, what they've been taught, um, they've been misled, you know, and and that can be a problem. That may be true. But when those people become the problem instead of what they believe, that's a problem. I'm going to make a blanket statement, which I generally don't do because there are almost always exceptions. It's, It's very rare you can make a blanket statement. But I think in this case, it's true. And this was why it's important to remember these Bible verses. If we love God, we keep his commandments. If we don't love our neighbor... We don't love God. We don't keep his commandments. If we don't love God, we don't love our neighbor. Now think about that. What happens when we don't love our neighbor? We don't love God. Okay, this doesn't mean you have to say what someone is doing is okay, or you get on board with someone, or you have to accept what they're doing, or some wild, crazy, satanic ideology. That's not what this means. But John says, if we say we love God, and we don't love our neighbor, we're a liar. If we can't separate an individual from a messed up ideology, and so we hate them, we're part of the problem. These two commands work in mutual harmony. When people divide and hate each other, they go into enemy mode and it's easy to go there. When we do that and see someone as our enemy, what we do is we dehumanize people. And we perceive everything that someone says and does as an attack or a threat. And we can see that in different groups of people. And I understand and see that there are people who view and treat Christians that way. They see Christians as their enemy and they view everything they do as an attack or a threat. And that's because they've decided to make Christians their enemy. But what Jesus classifies as most important, that fulfills all the commands doesn't allow us as his followers to reciprocate that feeling, that action, whatever you want to call it. As much as I might want to, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I can't, I can't mirror that back to people. I'm not allowed to do that. And that doesn't mean conceding anything we believe, not at all. But when we don't follow this command people with different beliefs or worldviews become the enemy. And that's why it's so important that we remember this, that we commit this principle, this scripture to memory. Because if we don't, we make people our enemy. And once they become an enemy, we dehumanize them. We see them as the problem instead of just thinking, well, they've just been misled or, you know, messed up, taught some weird things. We see them as the problem instead of what they believe. And when we do that, people with different worldviews become the enemy. And once they become the enemy, everything they do is viewed as an attack or a threat. And there's a lot of Christians out there who see different groups in the world like that. Oh, they're attacked. They're a threat. They're not a threat. You know, God God is still on his throne. You're gonna remember, need to remember what side you're on. And that all comes back what Jesus said about love God and love your neighbor. If we don't love our neighbor, it's because we don't love God. If we don't love God, we don't love our neighbor. You know, or at least we've moved away from loving God. You can't not love your neighbor and love God at the same time. You just can't. That's not how it works. That's what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. If you break God's commands, that makes you guilty or you have disgraced yourself and feel shame, whatever your culture might be. When Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, represents all the prophets and the law, everything hangs on this. He's bringing everything together into a cohesive unit. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you've missed the point. It's not about the rank order of these commands. It's about they all work together. It's not which one is most important. It's that they're all important. And this is how you keep them all. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the summation of the prophets and the law. And the point is, not that one command is more important than any, than, than another, it's, but, that, but they're all important and we need to keep them so we can serve Jesus well and live the way he wants us to live and interact with people the way he wants us to interact. Because if we mirror back the world's behavior, well, we're just not any different. And that all comes together in loving God and loving your neighbor. And it's actually not that complicated. I'm glad it's like that because it could be a lot more complicated, but if you break this, you break the whole thing. Regardless of culture, you're ashamed and guilty before God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says, let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus in faith, trusting his blood that he shed on the cross for us, removing our guilt, and our shame, and restoring righteousness and honor. We are guilt and shame-free when we have Jesus as our Savior. So as you go into your week this week, remember, love God, love your neighbor. If you're not doing them both, you're not doing either one. I look forward to speaking to you again tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today on the PC Speaking podcast. Tune in tomorrow for another episode of Through the Bible in a Year. If you have found this helpful, please follow the podcast and share it with a friend. It is our hope and prayer that every episode helps enrich your relationship with God and His Word. Even if the Sing